and we're going to talk about conflict this morning. Sound fun? So my objective is that you all go home and have long, passionate debates with whoever you came with today, or with whoever the person... No, no, not really. Uh, I, I had a conversation with a roommate several years ago, and we were debating what I'll say was a difference in living styles. It's a nice way of saying that he was messy and I was clean. And so we were having this conversation and going back and forth very nicely, very nicely. And he just, at one point, he just shook his head. He looked at me and he was like, well, there's one thing I could say. It's that Stephen Watson is not afraid of conflict. And I did not appreciate that comment in the least at that moment. Uh, but he's actually fairly wrong. I am actually fairly conflict averse. Uh, I do kind of dread bringing up the hard topics. It's not my favorite thing in the world. Um, I avoid sometimes. This is safe space. I can admit that, right? It's not my favorite thing to do is to have an argument to deal with conflict when it's sitting there. But I have worked on it a lot. And I guess that's why I'm the one that got the conflict talk and not Sarah or Rob. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I fight more often than they do. Nothing at all. My boss and my wife, who's going to choose? Oh, Stephen, definitely. Like, okay. Uh, <laughs> no fingers pointing there. I just all at me. Um, but love is messy and the number one calling that we have as Christians is to love others, and that includes dealing with conflict. In his novel, The Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky said, love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. I like that because what he's saying is that loving people is 10 times harder than we thought that it was going to be when we were a little kid, or than we thought it was going to be when we watched that Disney movie, or The Office, or whatever it is. It's a lot messier. It takes a lot more intentionality and work on our end. It's not bad, but it does take work to love people well. I think one of the, the biggest hiccups that I just want to like chuck out the window right away that we as Christians have is that we have this inane desire to be really, really nice and sometimes we think that that means that we cannot have any conflict in our lives at all. So we take all these Bible verses out of context and string them together and we're like, no, I can't fight with you because I have to turn the other cheek and I have to love other people and because Jesus said that he loves me. Okay, let's, we've, we've said it, chuck it out the window. That's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that we have to learn how to do conflict well, not that we avoid it all the time. There's a pretty big difference in that. Because here's the truth, all relationships have conflict. Yay! If you have any amount of honesty and vulnerability in your relationship, you are going to have conflict at some point or another. That's just the reality. It's going to happen. And if we don't learn how to have healthy resolution to that conflict, then all of our relationships are going to be fairly stressful and terrible. So we want to learn how to do this well. 
Uh, I love this quote by a therapist named Carl Whitaker. He said, conflict is the fertilizer of life. While not very fragrant, it is necessary for optimal growth. There you go. It's my last poop reference this morning, I promise. Ah, right, I heard a thank you there, okay. Uh, Well, as we get started this morning, I want to read a story about conflict from the beginning of the Bible, from Genesis, about Abraham and Lot. Genesis 13, if you have a Bible, feel free to open up to that. And it's got all the really good stuff. It's got family drama. It's got rich people drama. It's got selfishness. It's got selflessness. It's got, it's got God speaking. It's like if the passion of the Christ met the Kardashians. You know, it's perfect. It's what we all want in our Bible stories. Uh, so let's read this. Genesis 13, verse 1. So Abraham left Egypt and traveled north along with his wife and Lot and all that they owned. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. Verse 5, Lot, who was traveling with Abram, had also become very wealthy. But the land could not support both Abram and Lot with all their flocks and herds living so close together. So disputes broke out between the herdsmen of Abram and Lot. So real quick, Abram and Lot, nephew and uncle, but Lot's parents have died and Abram doesn't have any kids, so it's kind of more like an adopted father-son relationship, and then they get too wealthy to live together. Drama uh, enters the scene. Verse 8, finally Abram said to Lot, let's not allow this conflict to come between us or our herdsmen. After all, we are close relatives. The whole countryside is open to you. Take your choice of any section of the land you want, and we will separate. If you want the land to the left, then I'll take the land on the right. If you prefer the land on the right, then I'll go to the left. And this should strike you as being immensely generous because it is. And the drama is that Lot is not going to be as generous. Verse 10, Lot took a long look at the fertile plains of the Jordan Valley. The whole area was well watered. Lot chose for himself the whole Jordan Valley to the east of them. He went there with his flocks and servants and parted company with his uncle Abram. And then verse 14, after Lot had gone, the Lord said to Abram, look as far as you can see in every direction, north, south, east, west. I'm giving all this land as far as you can see to you and your descendants as a permanent possession. And I will give you so many descendants that like the dust of the earth, they cannot be counted. Go and walk through the land in every direction, for I am giving it to you. Abram's willingness to give Lot the best choice, the first choice, I think shows us a few things as we start off on what conflict looks like for us as followers of Jesus. So here are three things to get us going. First, healthy conflict resolution as a follower of Jesus is going to require us to give something up. The fun part, right? Now, it doesn't have to be like an immediate loss of prosperity like Abram encountered. That doesn't always have to be. It's not like you have to like write a check for a thousand bucks every time you have a fight. That's not healthy. It could just mean giving somebody else preference over yourself in order to bring resolution. It could just mean that you get over your uh, lack of comfort around the idea of conflicts in order to bring resolution and healthy reconciliation with that relationship but it will require something of us. 
The second thing is that it will always deepen your relationship with Jesus. And then it's always going to open us up to more joy and happiness than if we would have stayed stuck. Abram was probably really hurt by how all this went down. I mean, his surrogate son basically like tossed him away pretty quickly, devalued him, said that like my, my health and prosperity and happiness is more important than yours, chucked him away, happily walked away to the nice lands. Abram probably was hurt by a lot of this, but by dealing with it well, he kept his relationship with Lot, and God actually blessed him in a way that's like way beyond anything than Lot ever knew in his life. If we're willing to deal with conflict well, God's going to bless that. It doesn't always mean he's going to give us all the land that our eyes can see. That might be a little extreme, but he will bless it and he'll bless us. How we deal with conflict affects all of our lives. And so I want to spend this morning talking about how we can deal with it in a way that reflects the character and the love of Jesus to others that are around us this morning. We're going to continue in our series called Imperfect Together, and today we're going to talk about fighting well. Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you for what you want to do here in our hearts today. I thank you for the fact that you're already here, that your presence is here, that you're working in our hearts from the second that we walked in, that you're doing things in us. And we just give you permission, we give you space to speak to us, to bring healing to us, to bring wholeness, Lord. We, I do just ask this morning, Lord, that, that you will work in relationships that we have where conflict has, has really pulled us apart and bring healing, bring wholeness to those relationships. We say we love you, Jesus. We are yours. Come and speak to us, teach us, guide us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So how do we do conflict well? I want to look at six ways that I think the Bible encourages us to resolve conflict in Jesus's way, following his example. And the first should be like really, really simple. No, no brain surgery required. We need to pray about it a lot. And I want to say that prayer is important whether this is a, whether you're having conflict with somebody who knows Jesus or somebody who doesn't know Jesus. Your responsibility as a follower of Jesus is to cover it with Jesus, right? So we want to pray beforehand. We want to pray after. We want to pray when we're surprised by the conflict. We want to pray when we know that we're walking into it. We want to pray for the other person. You want to pray for the other person. That's important. And you want to pray for yourself. You want to pray for Jesus to be in the middle of the conflict as it's going on, for him to change your heart, for him to change the other person's heart. If you're not inviting Jesus into it, you're missing out because he'll answer that prayer. That is a prayer that he will always come and meet you in. So pray before, pray after, pray during, pray all the time when you're engaging in conflict it's necessary. It's really important. And the second thing is to initiate. You can groan if you want to, because not many of us like initiating conflict resolution. It's pretty painful for most personality types, but conflict never ends accidentally. I know. 
we all, every time that we're in an argument or that we have just some like random run in, we just really, we're hoping that somehow it's just going to disappear. That all of a sudden a unicorn's going to show up and magically poof some pink fairy dust and everybody will be happy all over again and you'll never have to address the situation. But that never actually happens. <laughs> and, let, and if you've seen a unicorn, take a picture next time. It never really happens. Conflict is only resolved with intentionality. That's the only way that it happens. And now for some of us, initiating might be the hardest part of this entire thing. And I get that because we have a lot of fears that are really tied into dealing with conflict. Some of us are worried that it'll only make things worse. And we go down that deep, dark path. Does anybody have an internal deep, dark path that you start to go down in conversations like this? I do. And I sit there and I stare at things for a long time when I go down that path. You start going down that path. You're afraid that the person won't like you anymore at the end if you actually bring it up. Or you're, you're afraid that you'll hurt their feelings. Maybe you're afraid that uh, it'll kind of turn on you and it'll all become about you. And the worst part about that is when it does turn on you and it becomes all about you and then you realize that they were actually right. And then that's kind of nasty, right? Nobody likes cleaning that one up. But we have all these fears surrounding dealing with conflict that we start to go down that path. But here's the reality. All of those things could happen. Maybe you have, uh, you have a fight with your spouse and all of those things do happen. You hurt their feelings. They turned it on you. It is all about you. You know what's better than avoiding that reality? Every single time, actually dealing with it. It will always be better if you actually deal with the situation than if you let it grow and grow and grow and turn into something else. That is never the healthy way to go. You don't want to avoid. Avoiding just lets the negative grow. And Jesus tells us this in Matthew 5. He says, so if you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Settle your differences quickly. Initiate and do it quickly. Okay, next part. And do it with humility. It just keeps getting better, right? We need to be willing to acknowledge that we played a role in the situation. We have to. Because conflict has this fun way of making every situation that's an argument turn into a replay of that Michael Jackson song, Man in the Mirror, where you are looking in that man in the mirror wondering if you will make a change today. It forces you to look and to see what it is that's staring back at you. There's no way to avoid it. Well, you can, but that's extremely unhealthy, and I hope that none of you ever do that. Uh, but humility means that you're willing to ask me-focused questions. Questions like, am I being overly sensitive? Am I being ungrateful? Am I being unrealistic? Too needy, too demanding? Am I overreacting to criticism? 
We need to be willing to ask those types of questions of ourselves. And this is why. Matthew 7, Jesus says, Why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? First get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. In the book Boundaries by Henry Cloud and John Townsend, they said, you cannot stop acting out a dynamic until you understand what you're doing. Take out the log out of your own eye first. We have to be willing to acknowledge what's going on internally. And for me, nothing has done this better than being a parent. Uh, when we were getting ready, the girls were getting ready to move in a year ago, we're adopting. The, the number one piece of advice that we were given was be willing to apologize. If you do something bad, apologize. Just acknowledge it, deal with it, and move on. It's setting a good example for them, uh, and it'll do some good stuff in your life. And let me tell you, that is really true, because as Sarah will tell you, this year I have gotten really good at fixing things, which if you connect the dots before that means that I've also gotten really good at realizing that I do a lot of things that need fixed and apologizing and working on it afterwards. I think that's probably the skill set that I've grown in the most this past year, which is pretty painful most of the time. Uh, But there's something just really healthy about being willing to say, my bad. I did do that, acknowledging the reality of where we're at. Uh, And that's okay because we're growing and maturing as parents, as spouses, as friends, as co-workers, for me as a pastor, and I'm not called to be perfect, and neither are you. Jesus never requires or asks us to be perfect. You can't actually find that in the Bible. It's not there. It's not what he puts out there for us. He says he's perfect, but we don't have to be because we couldn't. So give yourself grace to not be perfect and instead be generous in your acknowledgement of your imperfection to others and be generous in allowing other people to acknowledge their imperfection to you. Have humility in it. And the fourth thing is to actually listen to the other person. James 1.19, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. Now, the fun part about this is that this is, what I am telling you right now is that you do have to sit in front of the other person and listen while they tell you everything that you want to scream back at them that when you're like all fidgety and you're like, but, 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 nope. (laughs) Zip it. The Bible says to. The Bible says you have to zip it. You have to be willing to listen. Let them say what's going on, what they're feeling, what they're encountering. You know, I learned this example on blast a few years ago uh, at a church that we were pastoring in Connecticut. It was about 10 a.m. The second service was getting ready to start and I had to open it. And of course, somebody grabs me, one of the ushers grabs me and has a complaint that he had to lodge right then and there, literally like right as the service was getting ready to start. That is not my best time. I'll just give you a heads up now. That is not the time to lodge a complaint with me. Uh, I am, my mind is many other places. 
And so he grabbed me and he said, where's the phone in the lobby? It's like, we moved it this week. Like, I don't know what to say to this. And he was like, but what happened if somebody has a heart attack? What if somebody passes out? What if something bad happens? Like, how are we going to make a phone call? And I was like, I don't have time to deal with this right now. And then I did do this. And this is not good. Don't do this. But I took out my cell phone and I was like, and we all have one of these that we can make a call on. Yikes. Uh, not smooth. Um, and then I said, I don't have time to deal with this right now. And then I just kind of walked away. So you know what he spent the rest of the day doing? He called the board members. And I got to spend my next 48 hours in conversations about how badly I handled that situation. And you know, when I finally had time to talk to him, what he said that he was upset about? It wasn't that I didn't have time to talk about it right then. It wasn't even that I was a jerk and pulled out my cell phone and shoved it in his face and said, we all have these, um, especially as a younger guy to an older guy, not my smoothest moment. It was the fact that I wasn't willing to just listen to what he had to say, that I just didn't have any time to value him. That's what he was upset about. You can bet when he said that, that my head dropped because as a younger guy who's a leader, I am very aware of the stereotype that follows younger guys who are leaders that we don't have time to value other people that we're talking to. And I had been that stereotype. And I was just broken because I knew all it would have taken was me saying, I don't actually have time to talk right now, so when can we talk? And it all would have been fine. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. It matters. It will save you a lot of pain and frustration. And the next thing is to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15, instead speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. What's this mean in conflict? It's not about um, verbal vomit, for lack of a better term. This is not your excuse to just say anything you want to say. Uh, that's not what the Bible's telling us here. Uh, it's not your time to blame them or tell them how terrible that they are for what they did to you. Uh, this is the time to just be honest about your feelings. What is it that's going on internally that you need to toss out there? And speaking the truth is probably one of the riskiest things that you will do in healthy conflict resolution because if you do not like making the other person get upset, this is probably the point where they are gonna get a little bit upset at you. You might hurt their feelings a little bit. It's just probably, it's just a possibility. But when it's done the correct way, in love, in humility, covered with prayer, it is the only way to actually have healthy conflict resolution, to have reconciliation in your relationships. Because if one person doesn't feel like they can be honest with the other, then you're not getting anywhere because that's no longer a relationship. That's just two people talking at each other. You both have to be able to, in healthy ways, acknowledge the reality of what you're feeling and where you're at. 
don't devalue yourself or the other person by speaking less than the truth. But, and I want to say this loud and clear, it's okay to have a difference of opinion at the end of the day. Our culture is like 100% against this. If you don't believe me, listen to talk radio, watch CNN, Fox News, pay attention to our political system. We have a culture that tells us that if you have a difference of opinion, the only way to react to that is to mock, to reject, to completely ignore the other person. That you cannot have relationships if that's the reality. And that is completely and totally the opposite of how Jesus tells us to have relationships and to live our lives. You can have a friendship with somebody. Heck, you could be married to somebody and have a difference of opinion. You could vote for different candidates. Ooh, and it would be okay. Rick Warren, I think, says this really well. He says, can you walk hand in hand without always seeing eye to eye? I think that just hits one of the biggest weaknesses in our culture that we've lost the ability to still walk in relationship if we disagree on things. If you, if you show the people around you that you can do that, they'll pay attention to that. They'll notice that something's different. Our relationships need to show that. We don't need to have the same opinions in order to be restored in our relationships which leads to the last thought about how to do conflict Jesus' way, and that's that reconciliation matters. Reconciliation just simply in this instance means that the relationship is in a healthy place again. And that it's, this is always what we hope for. Unfortunately, it's not always what happens but we don't need to feel the weight of that if we've gone along the process in the way that Jesus lays out. So what does that look like? Matthew 18, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. So one-on-one, -on -one, then invite other people in. That's the pattern that Jesus lays out for us for healthy reconciliation. As we come to an end, this week I was reminded of a story that some of you may have heard before uh, about an elderly couple that had not had a single argument over the course of their entire 60-year marriage. Which is, of course, not real, but we'll get there. <laughs> 60 years, the wife was close to death, and the only secret they had kept was that there was this shoebox in the top of the, bed, the bedroom closet. And so finally the husband said, can we talk about the shoebox? The wife was like, yes. So he went and he got it, and he brought it to her. She takes off the lid and she shows him what's inside. Inside are two crocheted dolls and $95,000 in cash. And the husband's like, whoa, what's going on here? What, what, what happened? What, where, what's all this money? Like, what's going on? And the wife said, well, when we first got married, my grandmother told me to never fight with you. The best way to have a happy marriage is to never fight. 
She said, so if I ever got angry, I was just to go and crochet a doll. So that's what I did. And the husband, being a husband, immediately starts crying and because he thought that she was saying that, you know, she only made two dolls. She was only angry with him twice in the entirety of their marriage, 60 years. He's like, how could this be real? And she pats him on the hand. She says, honey, honey, I sold all the rest. Where do you think I got $95,000? <laughs> There you go. The worship team wants to come back up. Healthy relationships don't happen because of successful coping and avoidance techniques. They require a willingness to deal with the hard stuff. To uh, do uh, conflict the way that Jesus lays out for us. And Jesus tells us he, he, he shows us the way, and 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, there's one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Jesus Christ. The greatest asset that any of us have in doing conflict well and fighting well is an acknowledgement of the fact that Jesus is the one who gives us the grace that we need to do it. He reconciles us to each other, and he reconciles us to himself. That's his job. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to allow yourself to be reconciled to the reconciler. And then allow him to do the work in your relationships and in your heart. Because that's what he wants to do. He's the one who will bring healing and grace and love and humility. Be reconciled to Jesus so that we can then be reconciled to each other. Let's stand. We're going to pray and then we're going to sing a few more songs and worship. But let's pray first. Jesus, we just thank you that you are the reconciler, that you're the one who has given us the example, that you're the one who's laid out a path for how to do this well, how to fight well, how to love in the messy places well. And I pray for each one of our hearts this morning that will be made aware of the work that you've done to draw us to yourself. Let us be reconciled to you above and beyond anything else this day. We want to be deeply connected to you, Jesus, so I ask for that. Let us know you more. We thank you that you did the hard work, that you did the uncomfortable, that you gave up so much so that we could be in relationship with you. So that we could actually have healthy relationships with each other. We love you, Jesus. As we come to a time of worship, we just say that we want to encounter you, and so we ask for you to come to be here to show yourself to us this morning. Jesus' name.